If you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 16. Numbers 16, as we engage in another observation of the journey of our brothers and sisters in Israel. Our title is Arise, Move, and Go. Our subtitle is what I want us to meditate on, and we're going to spend a little time laying a foundation upon this meta-principle. This is a meta-principle that I want you to think about. Everybody has to do with this meta-principle that I'm going to lay down today by God's grace, and it is God has his own witnesses. He has his own witnesses. The title of our message is, These are my two witnesses. These are mine. When we study the Word of God, using a Christian lens, we are always looking for the rule and reign of Jesus the Christ in the Scriptures. Whenever the Word is read, whenever it's expounded, whenever it's taught, if you are a believer in Christ, the eyes of your understanding should be honed in on a sight of God's glory in the person of Christ in the text. You and I should be looking for either his sufferings or his glory. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. All the prophets wrote in alignment with that objective. They, they looked for and tried to understand the Bible in light of God's grand promise in Jesus. And what I mean by that is that if you and I are not intentionally saying, Lord, show me your glory, you will make the same kind of mistake that the people in our text is here making as well. And what is that, Pastor? That is being stuck what is called a horizontal dilemma. I've shared that with many of you before, laid out these principles. A horizontal dilemma is when you no longer can pierce through the horizontal limitations of life to see God on his throne, to see him ruling and reigning over everything. When you are stuck on a horizontal dilemma, all of your information falls short of merely a horizontal plane of information and data coming from the left or from the right, no pun intended. But the left or the right can't deliver you. Only he that sits in the heavens can deliver you. And where you fail to comprehend the true revelation of what's really going on with a God on his throne who cannot be seen apart from the revelation of his purpose and work in Jesus, you and I will always struggle with a horizontal what? That means you and I are going to either be accusing or excusing people based upon human judgments, based upon human reasoning, based upon our limited scope of understanding, which really is no understanding at all if the heavens don't open up and show you really who's in control of these factors. This is the reason your Bible is called the prophetic word of God. It's called the prophetic word of God because it's been given to you and I by the prophets. None of God's prophets ever spoke for God without first seeing God high and lifted up and seated on the throne of his glory. None of God's prophets ever spoke for God without first seeing God high and lifted up, seated on his throne and ruling over all things. We call this the sovereignty of the monarchical God. 
the prophets of the Bible saw God as a sovereign monarch. We call him the theomonarchial ruler of the universe. Christians hold that view as well. We call him Jesus, who is Lord. When you and I are not viewing the world through the lens of an exalted Savior, a seated Savior, a ruling Savior, then you and I are dealing also with a circumstance by which we are limited by the information that we have. And that information will be biased or skewed based upon our weaknesses, propensities, and bents. Am I making some sense? And because the enemy knows that all he needs to do is to get you to stop looking up, but look to the left and to the right, he can trap you in a horizontal dilemma and create a false dichotomy by which you think the right thing is on the right and the wrong thing is on the left, when in reality is wrong on both sides. You just don't know it. I'm going to keep laying a foundation for you because what you want to wake up doing is making sure you open the eyes of your understanding before you open your physical eyes. You want to make sure before you get up, you look up. You want to make sure that when you look up, you see up and understand that God is not moved. He has never, ever been moved. Everything that's going on is a consequence of his rule and his reign and his sovereignty and his power. Does that make some sense? It's important for us to capture that because it's important for us to capture that because what's going on in our text for me is remarkable, absolutely astonishingly remarkable. I told you I want to lay a foundation before we get into these things. So when your Bible is opened up, you're saying, show me your glory, Lord. I must see Jesus. I must see Jesus. That's why we opened up beautiful words, wonderful words of life. And that's why we close with rejoice. Our God is king. See, you had heard just a bit of God's mercy to us in Angelo's assertion of what was going on in the school district. And we gave a little clap here like we're on the golf course. But what we should have been saying is rejoice. Our God is king. Right. That's what we should have been doing. But we're not trained to rejoice in God's sovereignty when he acts to thwart and hinder the plans of the wicked. Because I don't know if you know, if God took his hand off of us, period, there would be no victory. There would be no triumph. There would be no advancement. There would be no glory. There would be no hope if God didn't thwart the plans of our enemy. And the Bible tells us we ought to praise him who sits on his throne every time he shows up in limiting the powers of humanity. But because we don't, I am very much concerned that you may not know whose team you're on. Let me keep laying the foundation because, see, this is bigger than church, but it starts here. On this day, this is absolutely remarkable. On this day, I am looking at 260 men Rulers in Israel, kings and princes we're about to see, who woke up one day planning on going to hell because they said God does not reign. I'm like, whoa. 260 men, we'll look at it, who are called to be princes. That means they represent God and his monarchial rule. Then there is a portion of them who also are the priesthood. 
That means they represent God in his priestly role as the mediator of his people. And yet here they are rising up in one day, deciding to go to hell alive. All right, here's the takeaway for you. If if it's already too saucy for you, here's the takeaway so you can get this when you go home. You want to understand your limitations. That's the takeaway, number one. You want to understand your limitations, child of God. You don't ever want to think that you are more than you really are. Understand your limitations. Also, the next thing I want you to capture is know your boundaries. Be clear on your boundaries. Because your boundaries are there to keep you from getting in more trouble than you would do even inside your boundaries. Did that make some sense? And here's the final one for takeaway as we get ready to deal with your, our text. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. My world is broken because it doesn't know its boundaries. It doesn't understand its limitations. It does not stay in its lane. My world is on the way to hell because it thinks it can take God's place and do whatever it wants to do. What you have going on in our text is an absolute coup d'etat. You got a coup taking place. What just happened was a whole new administration surreptitiously came together to decide to overthrow God's sovereign choice of how he rules over things. It's not uncommon from what goes on in our world today. In our world today, God sets up structures. He sets up systems. He sets up governments. And he tells those governments how they ought to behave. And then there are people who dare to challenge God's authority. And what they will do is either as an individual or as a group, try to overthrow God's dominion. Now, this is happening in your country. I just want you to know that right now your government is being overthrown. It's been that way for a long time. A surreptitious crew coming in, deciding we no longer want a constitutional government that's framed on Judeo-Christian principles that's guided by the word of the living God. We want a democratic process with Marxist tactics because we hate God. That's where you are today. But you know why I rejoice? Because God's still on his throne. He warned me about this long ago. He warned me about this long ago. I love his word. David said it in Psalm 119. Moreover, O Lord, by those precepts is your servant warned. Are we being warned today? It's important for you to get this. I don't mean to sound dramatic. I really want you to get the point because you're going to have to decide what team you're on. The enemy has risen up. The beast has emerged and is showing himself very clearly these days. I heard my elder talking about some rainbow flag. That is their banner of war. That's their banner of war. A total deconstruction of the family and annihilation of the hierarchy of authority patriarchally and then an annihilation of the true and the living God. So if you sit there and you smile about how cute that flag is, you're stuck in the horizontal dilemma. And you really don't care about your children. This is so true. It's so hard to not see. And yet I I promise the vast majority of people around you don't see. And it's one thing not to see. It's another thing not to care. 
It's another thing not to care. Let me see if I can work this through. This is going to take a little bit of time. So if you got some lunch, stick some food in you. There go that same brother saying, take your time. I tell you, that brother, he worked all week, made a bunch of money, and he took a good nap last night. So he's ready for preaching for the next five hours. What makes this account so sensitive and and worthy of uh, intrigue and deep investigation is that this here is also rooted in the same diabolical attempt that the enemy did in the beginning. It's always about destroy the family, destroy the family. Point number one in our outline. I've already given you a kind of larger optic around uh, treason going on in the government. I'm going to unpack that now, but it always starts first in the family. In order to have a twisted, wicked government, you've got to destroy the family. You got to destroy family. You got to destroy every family that dares to have a biblical model of leadership in it. You have to. Treachery where? In the family. Look at verse one through three in our text, and I'll see if I can make you sensible to what's going on here in Numbers chapter 16. Now, Korah and the sons of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pileth, sons of Reuben, took them, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel. How many? 250 princes of the assembly. They were famous in the congregation. Men of renown, that's Genesis chapter 6. These are the giants of the earth. They were the giants in Israel. These are the ones with the money. These are the ones in positions of authority, prestige, and power. They're the renowned ones. Are you guys hearing me? So notice what, how it started and developed itself. It started with the priesthood. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are all part of the priesthood. And then they reached out to the government. This is the princes of Israel. And they conspired together to create a coup to take over the kingdom from God through Moses and Aaron. Did y'all catch that? It's extremely obvious to me under point number one, treachery in the family. Let me help you because we do a little exegesis. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 16 through 20. I want you to get the framework because I know what Moses is doing. When Moses writes, he's writing a letter to the people of Israel for whom this matters in some ways more than you and me. All the little minutiae, the jots and the tittle of scripture for them are important because this is a historiography of the chronological journeys of the people of Israel. Did that make some sense? So your grandmamas in there, your great grandmamas in there, your great great grandmamas, your uncles, your aunts, your cousins are all in there. Your granddaddy, your great granddaddy is all in the archives of this data. And so it would be of interest to you when you discover that you're part of a family tree that was either faithful to God or rebellious against him. Am I making some sense? So see, you and I have our own family trees outside of scripture to a certain degree. So you're not as sensible to this as a Jewish person who knows their roots would be. So people listening to Moses write and read about this, they're very much troubled in Exodus 6, 16, as God is preparing Israel to come out of Egypt, he's lining up his army and his army starts with his priesthood. And here's what it says in verse 16. These are the names of the sons of who? These are the names of the sons of who? 
lift it up because I want you to be taught it. Many of our people have learned this years ago. You will be told it here in a moment. They come out of the womb of Jacob. These are the sons of Jacob, okay? Now notice what it says. According to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, three sons of Levi, right? Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137 years. Mark that. I want you to see that, okay? 137 years. Next verse. I want to go to verse 20. Lay a foundation for them. Now the sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimei according to their family. So Gershon only had two boys. Y'all see that? Now notice what the next verse says. And the sons of what? What happened to Gershon? We don't know. He didn't even live long enough to have a genealogical uh, uh, expiration date. We don't know if he lived 50 years, 60 years, 70 years or what. He simply disappears off the scene, only leaving two boys. Are you with me? That means something because daddy Levi was given to us in his total chronology of a hundred and what? 37 years. That always indicates in the word of God that God blessed you. When you live long, that was a blessing. And it means also that you are meeting what is called the creation mandate, the biological imperative. You are having sons and daughters and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Did that make some sense? Because that's God's mandate. Multiply and replenish the earth. Don't kill the children. Have them, grow them, mature them. Let them spread upon the earth and be the Imago Day for my name's sake. So now notice, uh, we don't know what happened to Gershon. All we know is he didn't continue except after two boys, and we don't even know much about them. But here comes the one I want you to get. And the sons of Kohath, they had Amron and Izar and Hebron and Uziel and the years of the life. Now you notice that Kohath has a life, lifespan. And the years of Kohath were, listen, 133 years. He only died three years earlier than his dad. That is a blessing, a blessing. His older brother, we don't even know. He just died early on. Okay, am I making some sense? Now watch this, verse 19. And the sons of memory, uh, Merari, Mahali, and Mushi, these are the families of Levi according to their generations. Verse 20, here it is. And Amron took him, Jochebed, his father's sister's wife. They could do that back in those days when Moses wrote the Levitical law, that stopped. And she bare him Aaron and Moses. So Aaron and Moses are the sons of Amram, right? Who is the son of Levi, right? Because Levi is the granddaddy of Aaron and Moses. You've got Amron, you've got Kohath. You guys see that? Notice what it says. Amron took him, Jochebed, his father's sister's wife. She bare him Aaron and Moses, and the years of the life of Amram were 130 what? Exactly the same as his father's Levi. I understand that block of chronology. Chronology has a deep redemptive theological significance to it. I simply want you to understand God had a purpose for Levi. Now where I want you to go to briefly unpack this more is over into Genesis chapter 29, verses 31 through 35. I'm laying a foundation. Notice what it says. Uh, Genesis chapter 29, 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, why? Because Leah's womb was, op- was not open when Rachel and Leah were taken by Jacob. Remember that? And what God would do with Leah, because Jacob loved Rachel and loved Leah not, That is, he did not have a natural ontological love for her. And we we don't fault him for that because his tricky father-in-law, Laban, 
swapped Leah for Rachel. And the brother had to work another seven years for Rachel, 14 years before he could get her. So he had to put up with this tricky father-in-law, right? And that only indicated that he loved Rachel more than the average brother. That'll come home in a second. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was what? And that's thematic in the scriptures. That's thematic in the scriptures. It's an indication. Being born, having children is a type of being born again. Except you be born again, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And every believer is barren until God gives you the miraculous grace of bearing fruit. Am I making some sense? This is why Sarah was barren. This is why Rebecca was barren. This is why Rachel is barren. When they have children, what they have to say is God graced me to have children. And what we say is God graces us to be saved. We're not saved by our works, not by our effort. Not by our beauty, not by our power, but only by the grace of God are we saved. We're a bunch of barren men and women apart from the grace of God. Now watch this because I want you to get the four. This is a prophetic line I want you to get before we go back. Notice what it says in verse 31. Rachel was barren and the text tells us, verse 32, I want to walk it down. And Leah conceived and bare a son. Do you see it? She called his name what? Reuben's the firstborn. Y'all got that? For surely... For he said, surely the Lord hath what? Looked upon my affliction. I want you to capture that. Reuben means affliction. Affliction. Did you get that? So the firstborn of Jacob's son represents the state of all men outside of Christ and particularly his elect. You and I are afflicted with the curse of sin. The next child that's born, we want to see it. Look at it in verse 33. Look at it again. Let's keep it moving. And she conceived again and bare another son and said, because the Lord has what? Because the Lord has what? That I was hated. He had therefore given me a son and called him what? It's the same as Simon. Simon Peter, the word means God has heard. God looks on our affliction and God hears our cry. See, the sinner has to cry out to God. And God has to look upon your affliction. And then he responds. Now, I want you to see what it goes on to say. Therefore, his name was called. I'm sorry. She conceived again and bare a son and said, now this time will my husband be what? Joined unto me. He will be what? Joined unto me. He will be what? Joined unto me. That is the definition of the name in front of us now, which is Levi. Look at it. Because I have borne him three sons, therefore was his name called what? Levi is the father of Aaron and the father of Moses. Levi literally means to be attached, to be joined together, to be reconciled. This is the family of the Levitical code. Your book Leviticus is about the work of the priesthood in reconciling men and women to God. Did you get that? I don't want to be here alone. Levi is a prophetic name being the mechanism by which God, who is separated from us because of our sin, brings us back together in the person of who? Levi. Levi. Levi is the mechanism of joining. It's the priesthood. It's where the blood is offered. It's where sacrifices are done. Because God is holy, and then he has a bunch of people who should be holy, but the problem is they're not. So how does God remedy the unholiness of his holy people? By having a mechanism called the priesthood that offers sacrifices of blood atonement three times a day, morning, noon, at night, as a continual reminder 
that God's people are to be joined to him only by faith in Jesus Christ, who must die in the behalf of their sin in order for God to be able to accept them. Did that come home, child of God? In other words, you don't mess with the priesthood. It's your only hope of fellowship with God. The priesthood is the key to your continuance. You got the people of the Levitical code told uh, Aaron and told his sons and told what we're about to deal with now, Korah, Dathan, and Byron, because they're in there too, Korah is, told them to stand in the gap between God and the people. The Levitical priesthood represents the people to God. That's why they were to do the ministry in the church, the way, in the wilderness, the way they did. This is going to be the problem that uh, Korodathan and Abiram are having because Korodathan and Abiram are also in the priesthood under the uh, father of Kohath, okay? So uh, Aaron and Moses are under Amron. Uh, Korah is under Kohath. Remember Gershon, Amron, and Kohath. So Kohath is the brother to Amron. That means that Moses and Korah and uh, Aaron are cousins, and they're all functioning in the priesthood. Now, this is more explicitly laid out in Numbers chapter 3. Look with me over in Numbers chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Numbers 3, 27 and 28. I'm laying a foundation for you because you have to have it. If you don't know your Bible, you won't understand the treachery that's going on. And of Kohath was the family of the Amorites, Aramites, and the family of the Israelites, and the family of the Hebronites, and the family of the Uzzalites. These are the families of the what? Kohathites, verse 26. In the number of all of the males from a month old and upward were 8,600, uh, 8, uh, 8, keeping the charge of the sanctuary. That was their job, to keep the charge of the sanctuary. The families of the sons of Kohath shall pitch on the side of the tabernacle uh, southward. Let me have one more verse. This, uh, I should actually be going back. And so it says, And the chief of the house of the father of the families of Kohath shall be Eliphaz and the sons of Uziel. Now, if you'll notice, their job was to pop the tent up, put it together, and maintenance it as they would journey through the, Israel, through the, through the camp. If we were to read the earlier verses, guess what? Moses and Aaron and his sons were to do ministry in the sacerdotal work of the priesthood inside the temple. Inside the temple, Aaron's sons, Eleazar and the rest. It was, as we're going to see, uh, Nadab and Abihu, but a problem occurred with them, okay? They were all working in the temple. So what do we have going on here? This is what Moses is going to teach us in a moment. On this day, treachery in the family occurs... Because cousins in the family aren't satisfied with the gifts that God has given them. Go back to your text. Go back to your text. I want to drill down into these points. You can go back and look at this more. I just want to make sure we're not here too long. Under point number one, a Levite corruption occurs. Do you see that sub point A? A Levite corruption occurs. Now, I thought about this. Look at how wonderful God has designated Levi to be the representative means of reconciliation between God and the people. Wouldn't you be blessed if God told you, I want you to be the one offering sacrifices so your brethren don't go to hell? Right. But look at Genesis chapter 49. Jacob knew something about his kids, didn't he? 
He's about to die, and he says this in verses 3 through 6 in Genesis 49. Jacob's about to die, so he has something to say about the boys that we see in Numbers 6, verse 1. He says Reuben, because Reuben is in verse 1 and 2, 2 of our text. Reuben's the firstborn. Levi's the thirdborn. Y'all got that? Simeon's the second. Listen to what it says. Reuben, you are my firstborn. You are my strength and you are the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and power is in you. Isn't that a beautiful way to phrase it? But this is wild. These are the paradoxes of scripture. You will have a prophetic name for which your parents will want you to live up to, but you may very well in your own free will do exactly opposite of what your name implies. Remember, I told you the, the evidence that you have a free will is that you rebel against God. Isn't that so? Look at the next verse. Here it is. It's important to get. Unstable as water. Okay, I could sit here for a minute. Now, when you got a brother who is powerful and mighty and strong and has all kind of skill sets, that means he's influential. That means he can draw a lot of people in. But if he's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. High, he's going to be a problem for everybody. He's like nitroglycerin. Are you guys hearing me? So God says, Simeon, you were ordained to have power. The problem is you're unstable. You're unstable. Can, y'all, y'all ready? People can manipulate him. They can influence him. They can, they can, they can deceive him. They can propagandize him. They can control him. You don't want that kind of person in power. You don't want a person in power who doesn't know his standing, doesn't know his grounding, doesn't know his gifting, doesn't know his calling, doesn't know his boundaries, doesn't know his limitations, don't know his authority, don't know his hierarchy, because other people can control him. Hint! Hint! All right, notice what it says in verse 5. I'm sorry, the latter part of verse 4. Unstable as water, you will not what? Now, you know he's frustrated because his daddy told him, you have potential, but you're not going to excel. You know he's frustrated, don't you? Because he has potential, but he's not going to excel because he's using his power for the wrong reason. Jacob is letting him know, boy, I see you. I've watched you as a little child. I remember what you guys did to, uh, to Dinah and the family that my baby girl messed up with, how y'all treacherously tore into their bodies, and Reuben was in on that. I remember what you did to my son Joseph. I remember what you did. Do you guys remember what they did? That's why you got to read your Bible, because see, it's really talking about you and me. We're all like this by nature. Some of us are worse than others. So this brother got all kind of potential for power and leadership and control, but he can't control his picadillos. He can't control his inward demons. He can't control his passion. He does not have the ability to restrain himself from his addictions. Sound familiar? That's where we are in the 21st century. I love what Mr. Spurgeon said. You are only who you really are when no one sees you. It's really important to get this. Unstable as water, you will not excel because you went up into your father's bed. He did. He did. This is Amnon and, uh, and, and David's other son, too, as well, Adonijah. 
in in an attempt to grasp after their father's throne. Again, the spirit of the Antichrist wanting to usurp authority over the hierarchy of the patriarchal system. Are y'all following what I'm saying? There it is. Now watch this. He went up into his father's bed, then defilest thou it, and he went up to my couch. Now this is wild. Jacob waits till he gets on his deathbed to call his son Simeon out. Did that come home? Did that come home? Wait until he gets to his deathbed. What was he doing? Probably waiting for Simeon to repent. Probably waiting for him to come back and say, Dad, I was young. I was stupid. I was wrong. I know better now. But do you know some fools live and die fools? All right, let's look at the next verse. Simeon and who? There it is. So you got Reuben, affliction. Simeon is God heard. Levi is God will join. On the right side, they have positive characteristics and prophetic potential, right? But here on the left side, wicked attributes. Look at it again. Notice Simeon and Levi are brethren. They are instruments of what? Are in their habitation. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. Verse 6. Verse 6. Oh, my soul, do not come into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou what? That's a play on the word Levi. Levi means to unite. And his daddy is saying, don't, no one wants to be united with Levi because he's treacherous. That's a play on what we call hypocrisy, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Can I keep teaching? Because what you got here is Levi should be the means by which sinners can safely come into fellowship with God on the blood atoning work of Christ because Levi is properly and authentically representing God the Father. But when he is as wicked as he is, when you come in, he's going to devour you as were the sons of of Samuel, the sons of Eli, Ophni and Phinehas. When people came in with the offerings, he consumed the offering and slept with the women, did they not? So you see the tension here. This is all in verse one of our opening text. Y'all got time? See it? Now, the people that are more interested in what I'm saying to you now are the Hebrew people because they have to look at scripture and see the mirror of themselves and realize there's nothing new under the sun. Here it is, watch this. He says, be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man. And in their, here it is, self-will, they dig down a wall. Y'all got that? Just anger, uh, voracious wickedness grabbed them and sent them into a tailspin where they behaved exactly the opposite as to what they should. They were carnal men, were they not? And daddy is laying on his deathbed and saying, you guys need to be careful about the priesthood. The priesthood has long black robes on, but under there are daggers and perversions of all kind. This is the Levitical corruption. Sub point B. Now let's go back to our text because I want to kind of make some movement here. I'm in chapter 16, verse one. I'm going to make my way to verse four. And notice what it says after they, I'm in verse two. And they rose up before Moses, in front of Moses, against Moses. That's what that preposition means. They rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Do you see it? This is where I extract my title. You got 260 men against two. 
These are my two witnesses. Now, that's the theme of Scripture. I don't know how slow you guys are, but the Bible is clear. God always uses a few. And out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Stay with me. A victory is not one in numbers. This is why you cannot put your hope in politics. You can utilize the mechanism. You must not trust in it. It fails you all the time. Listen to me. Victory only comes with being on the side of God. So God is going to show in this account to you and me who his witnesses are, because everybody lying about how they love God. And in fact, you can't even become the president without coming up to the pulpit or to the podium with a big old Bible and a cross on it. Every president we got has a big old cross on it. And look at the hell that we have reaped from these presidents over the last 10 presidents in terms of the policies. You see some hypocrisy somewhere? This is where Christians need to wake up. You need to wake up. There's nothing new under the sun. So our text is teaching us something critical here. Notice what it says over in verse four. Uh, I'm sorry, verse three. And they gathered themselves together against Aaron and Moses and said unto them, you take too much upon you. Do you see that? Seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Do you see that verse? Now, stay with me. The latter part of that verse, you take too much on yourself. The Lord is among all of us. We are all holy. You take too much on yourself. That was propaganda that went all throughout Israel. That was propaganda. That was malinformation. That was disinformation. And it deceived a lot of people. Are y'all keeping up with me? Because you're going to see it in the latter part of the chapter next week. The whole nation was against Moses and Aaron because all of the news feeds they had read. Instead of doing the hard work and determining what was right by checking it out for themselves. See, remember, I told you, he that is first in his own cause always seems to be right. The neighbor comes and checks him out. You prove everything you hold fast to that which is good. Pastor, how do I do that with everything that's going on? First, start with knowing what God says. When you know what God says, you ain't got to waste your time the moment you hear someone saying something contrary to God. I wonder if they're telling the truth. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Because if the Bible tells you he made them male and female in the image of God, created he them, male and female, created he them, then we don't have to have a conversation about how many genders there are. We don't have to have that conversation. You don't have to. But what you will do is you will battle with determining whether you are on the Lord's side or not. Today, this is about who's on the Lord's side. That's what this message is about. Who's on the Lord's side? This is why they don't want you coming to church. This is why COVID hit. They shut down all the churches. They don't want you hearing from God's word. Please know that. And it won't stop. It will happen again. It's so very clear, the corruption in the camp. And, and, and notice what happens in verse 4. I want you to capture this because they have risen up with a false report. And I'm going to show you a quick pro quo. I love Moses. Because Moses knew who he was. He knew his job was to stand in the gap for a bunch of almost irreparable sinners. I want to call them reprobates. I know a hand of them were saved. The vast majority of them scare me to death. 
particularly if you read your Bible. Read your Bible. This is not really, I, I get your laughter. It's not funny. There's no way you can know God the way these people knew God and not know God. Unless your heart has been desperately seized and captivated by a massive strong delusion. You don't have a God come up, rescue you out of Egypt by a mighty hand for a whole year and then keep you for two years in the wilderness, not having failed one time to take care of you. And you still want to commit high treason against that God. You must be desperately deluded. Am I making some sense? I have a real concern about the application of this in my present generation. Thank you for Moses. Watch it. And when Moses heard, he fell on his face. See? See, I would have looked out my window and shut my window and went and got a bunch of my friends. Smith, Wesson, or a couple other things. Because I would have known Armageddon was on. But see, Moses knew it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit. I, I, I get that, Moses. I know. See, Moses is a Levite. He's a priest, too. Am I making some sense? You stay in your lane. You stay in your lane. You don't get out of your lane. You stay in your lane. Can I teach you, God? You stay in your lane. I know Moses fought in himself to stay in his lane because he had been trained now, two years now. Every time he turns around, they're constantly rising up against him. And now it's the echelon of the uh, nation rising up against him. All of the princes... And what does he do? He humbles himself before the Lord. He humbles himself before the Lord. He doesn't lean on his own understanding. He doesn't incline himself to his strength. He says, Lord, help me understand what's going on here. See, you become counterintuitive. You stop. You don't let your anger fuel you to a kind of action that is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or a life for a life. You don't do that, Christian. Nothing is accomplished by the power of the flesh. It's always by submission to the Lord. It's always waiting on God. This is why we call Moses, according to Numbers 13, the meekest man in all the earth at that time. And what I love about this, can I tell you? This ain't even really about Moses. This is about his knucklehead brother Aaron. Notice what it says in verse 5. And he spake unto Korah and unto all the company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show you who are his and who is holy. He'll cause him to draw near unto him, even whom he has chosen. He will cause him to draw near to him. What was Moses talking about? The priesthood. Who God selects to be the high priest representing the people. Stay with me, saints. Moses is not interceding for himself. He's interceding for his brother. And you know what that told me? Where's Aaron at? Because, see, if you go back to previous accounts, when the children of Israel acted the food, Numbers 14, 5, and they talked about we want to go back to Egypt, both Aaron and Moses fell on their face. Stay with me, child of God. Listen carefully. If you got an army rising up against your brother, and they want to take him out and start their own priesthood, and you happen to care about your brother, wouldn't you at least want your brother on the side with you as you advocate for him, as you lay down for him, as you, as you flank him, as you intercede for him? Wouldn't you even want him there? Yes. 
See, this is what I told you about Brother Aaron. I love him, but he was as fickle as could get. Brother Aaron was a, Brother Aaron was a politician's politician. He's ambivalent right now. He don't know what to do. Y'all got that? He, he doesn't know what to do. This is so wild, but I want you to get it. This is why God don't, he doesn't take any sort of uh, confidence in numbers. Like Aaron is the firstborn and Moses is the younger. Aaron's 83, Moses is 80, his sister Miriam is 82. Did that come home? Oh, by the way, can I say something about Miriam? Miriam learned to shut her mouth. Shut your mouth. Stay in your lane. You will never hear from sister girl again clowning her brother wanting to take his place. Know your boundaries. Know your boundaries. Stay in your lane. Be content with such things as you have lest they be taken away from you. See it? So this is, she in the background praying. I know what she's doing. Do you? She's praying because she realized how the serpent worked in her and worked in Aaron to try to take Moses out. And here he comes again now after her big brother Aaron. And Aaron is nowhere to be found right now, is he? His brother is standing in the gap between him and these vile beasts as described in Psalm 22, look at it, Moses intercedes. And so what does Moses say? Look with me over in verse seven. I'll pick this up and come back. Verse six and seven. This do then, you guys who think you can take the priesthood, get you censers and all your company and put fire therein and, uh, and bring them before the Lord tomorrow. So tomorrow we can ready to find out. Go get you some censers. Y'all got that? Woo. And guess what? They did it. Notice what the text says. They put and put fire in it and come before the Lord. And it shall be, be that the man whom the Lord choose, he shall be holy. And then notice what Moses says in verse seven, the latter part. Are you ready? Korah, Dathan, Abiram, the rest of you, you are the ones who are actually taking too much on yourself. See, this here is the way political rhetoric goes. I want you to get this. The enemy always projects on his adversaries what really he is doing. The enemy always projects on his adversaries what he is doing. Now, y'all need to listen to me because you know I've been dealing with this deeply across our land. So when they tell you to go to the left, you go to the right. When they tell you to look down, look up. When they say no, say yes, because they're always telling you something wrong based on their own projections. I know this hurts. It's the God honest truth. They'll tell everybody you're the ones doing the wrong and they're doing the wrong. Did you hear me? Now, please listen to why I say that, because they know there's a sucker born every day. They know people are not committed to truth. They know people will just do whatever the media says, whatever the legacy media lays out. They'll just do it lock, stock and barrel. And yet they're the ones actually committing the criminal offenses. They took a general principle. Korah took a general principle. I'm going to give you another one. He took a general principle because I told you, you need to learn how to parse. You need to learn how to be critical in your thinking. You need to analyze propositions. You need to know what truly is valid and what is not valid. You need to know the percentage of what a person is saying, whether it's plausible or not, or whether the whole thing needs to be thrown out. Am I making sense? This is called rightly dividing rhetoric. Corinth said, all of the Lord's people are holy. 
What he did was take a general principle of positional truth and make it infer that all of God's people were behaving holy. But you and I know nothing could be further from the truth. They were positioned for holiness, being brought out of Egypt, but they barely practiced holiness before the Lord, did they not? How many times did God say over and over, Moses, move out the way, I'll wipe him out. He said it in this text again, because he had told them, be ye holy for I am holy, but they would not be. So there's a, a general principle that will say you will call yourself holy positionally, but are you holy practically, right? This is the way Peter puts it. This is the way Jesus put it. Jesus says, be ye perfect, even as your father in heaven is what? Then Peter said, be ye holy, even as your father is holy, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. The motivating factor for our doing what's right ought to be because we're sons and daughters of God. And if being a child of God doesn't motivate you to be what's right, you may be positionally holy, that is declaring yourself holy. But like our elder said, on that day, God will say, I don't even know who you are. Because every seed bearing herb brings forth fruit of its own kind. Right? Wisdom is justified of our children. And what we know right now is fundamentally the leadership has attempted a coup, have they not? And the people are ready to go in in on it, are they not? Here's what Moses does. I want you to get it. Moses sets up a day of court. And he doesn't wait two years. He says, tomorrow we're going to have court before the high king of heaven. All you men, take your censers and come before the Lord. Did y'all get that? Since y'all want to be priests. Since you think the priesthood is by popularity or by vote, every one of y'all come before the presence of the Lord with your senses. Are you keeping up with me? Right. And those fools bought that proposition, didn't they? This goes to show you how strong delusions are. I'm getting ready to take you there. See, for me, I didn't already read the text. Y'all don't remember it? It's Numbers chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Aaron, poor brother Aaron, had two sons who thought that they could just take up senses, walk before the Lord, and do whatever they want to do. Now, why would I have just read the newspaper about God rejecting every other priest but Moses, and then Mo, but Aaron, and then Moses goes, go get you a censor. Let's go see if God changed his mind. The only reason men and women will do that is because they're deceived. The only reason they would do it is because they actually don't believe that God exists. The devil has successfully lied to them, has he not? See, uh, for me, uh, one of the reasons why I believe people act the way they do is because I know they don't believe God exists. You only, David says, the transgression of the wicked said before my eyes, there's no fear of God. I know they do what they do because they don't fear God. They don't fear God because they don't believe he exists. That's logical, isn't it? Right, this is what we call unbelievers. And so they're going to take up their senses, aren't they? Are they making a grave mistake? And this is what people do every day when they have allowed themselves to be deceived. So I want you to catch it. They're trapped in an evil net right now. Are they not? They're trapped in the net of their own mechanicians. Their own horizontal dilemma has proven that they weren't talking to God They were talking to each other and they had hatched a plan to overtake God's kingdom. They don't even know they're enemies of God, aren't they? 
And they don't realize that Moses is simply doing what God told him to do. Moses, tell them to come near to me. I'll prove to everyone that I know what I'm doing when I choose whom I choose to be leader of my people. You guys got that? That's what's in front of us. That's what's in front of us. I love Moses' intercession. Let me deal with the last subpoint briefly. Look at, uh, look at subpoint C in, uh, under point number one. Aaron's what? Aaron's rebuke. This is what we just learned from Moses over in verse 8 through 11. This was not about Moses. This was about Aaron. Look at it again in chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. And Moses said unto Korah, here I pray you, you sons of Levi. Notice how he's attaching them to daddy Levi. See that? Because they're also sons of Levi, as is Moses and Aaron. And now Moses knows that the snake in his granddaddy Levi is the snake that's in Korah now. Remember what Jacob said? Do not come into their secret. Do not unite with them. So what is Moses doing? He's exposing Korah and Dathan and Byram of being serpents. Notice what he says in verse uh, 9. Does it seem to you a small thing that God, the God of Israel, has separated you from the congregation of Israel? That's Numbers 3 again. To bring you near to him to do service of the tabernacle of the Lord. Now, by the way, I want you to get it. Please get this. Moses is asking him, do you think it's a small thing for you guys to have been chosen by God to maintenance the tabernacle whereby God dwells? The Shekinah glory abodes on the tabernacle, does it not? And, And wouldn't it be an honor For you to be one who is called to maintenance the temple, maintenance the building, maintenance the boards, maintenance the sockets, maintenance the standing, the holy of holy. Make sure the badger skin and the crimson skin and the silk and all that is clean and washed every time the tabernacle is set up. Wouldn't it be an honor to make sure that when the king of glory comes in, his house is clean and you be the one doing it? I guarantee you Christians don't think like that today. All they want is what they can get from God. Please understand that. Please understand what I'm saying. The work that goes in to preparation for this moment requires dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And the average Christian doesn't even think about it for five minutes, but they want to be blessed by God. And yet the people that do it, some ignorant Christians will call them stupid. They're more blessed than the rest of us. Because they're walking in their lane, they're understanding their role and enjoying their calling, even if it's sweeping the floor, even if it's vacuuming, even if it's washing the windows. See, the first shall be last. I can tell you that now. Because that's what Jesus did when he came. He didn't take the high seat. He took the low seat. I see Jesus in this. He took the low seat. He took the low seat. He he grew up in the hood. He didn't take his position in Judah. He went to Galilee. He lived a very poor life. Am I making some sense? Because God is no respecter of persons. God judges the heart. He doesn't judge your bank account. He doesn't judge your exterior appearance. It's not about face. It's not about race. It's all about grace. And when it's about grace, nothing else matters. 
That'll come home one day. That'll come home one day. It's so clear to me. Aaron's rebuke is that all this is about Aaron. They're coming after Aaron, aren't they? Now, do you know why they're coming after Aaron? Because Aaron came after Moses. We saw it back in Numbers. Remember chapter 13, verse 1 and 2? Y'all remember that? Aaron and Miriam rose up against Moses. This is what will happen when you start practicing an evil deed. It will come back whatsoever men sows, that shall he also reap. So Aaron now is living with the duplicity of a character that's unstable. Is that right? And the best he could do is be silent. This is why I want to tell you to give, your, give, Aaron some, give Moses some credit. Will y'all do that? Because Moses doesn't have to do this. He does, but he doesn't. See, he could have simply said, Aaron, what do you want to do? Because we know they're coming after the priesthood because these are all sons of Levi. Y'all got what I'm saying? Thank you, God. For Moses, he's a great type of Christ. He does not have to stand in the gap for me. He does not have to stand in the gap for you. He, you don't, he doesn't owe you and I anything. When we rebel against God and he intervenes for us, it's purely his mercy. Christ knew no sin, did no sin, and him was no sin at all. All the sin is in me. For him to mediate between the Father and me is merely out of his grace and mercy. See what I'm getting at, children of God? This is what I mean by seeing Jesus in the scriptures. Point number two, the true anointed of God. I need to keep it moving. Look at what Moses says, because Moses is about to lay it out. I love this. Moses said, okay, brothers, y'all want the priesthood? Go get some censors. Go get some censors, okay? You take too much on yourselves. Look at verse 12. I love this. Um, no, verse 11. For which cause both you and all your company, Korah, have gathered together against the what? Your company have gathered together against the what? In other words, didn't Moses know that they were really going after God? See what I meant when I said a vertical view versus a horizontal view? See, people who will have their eyes open know that this is a battle against the Lord. I'm going to make an application. I'm going to keep moving. So everywhere Vodi is preaching, Vodi Bakum, he's compelled to talk about what's happening when it comes to the destruction of our children. He'll have a message that he's prepared to preach in an arena and he'll say, but I'm compelled to talk about this. I actually have to talk about it. And what he begins to say is we are in a spiritual warfare. And we can know it for sure because the children are at stake. See, in other words, he's not taking this politically. He understands the banner of the rainbow flag is an all-out war against God. It's a genocidal attack against the patriarchal model of the theomonarchial king and all those who would submit to his crown rights. See it? Do you see it? And that's why he's saying what he's saying. He's saying we're in a spiritual battle. And while you are not aware that it's a spiritual battle, you are not praying. You are not praying. You are not praying that God would stop them from killing the children. Yeah, I'm just letting you know. There it is. I'm just letting you know. See, we have, we're in our own war here in America. And there are many countries in the world that are looking to America to see whether or not America would stop being paralyzed by fear and cowardice and love the children enough to stand up for them. 
and they're looking and they're amazed at how much religion we have. We got every religion under the sun in America. Hinduism, Buddhism, shamanism, Christianity, all kinds of religions, right? Islam, right? We got all the religions here. And none of them are standing up for the children. This is a delusion of massive proportion. It means everybody is really living for themselves. That's what that means. That's totally what that means. That means we have been distracted. You and I have been captivated by our own carnal lusts. And we don't believe in the future. Because I can give you a trajectory of what's going to happen if the present policies continue the way they are. In less than 10 years, America will not look anything like your mama's America. It will not. Ten years from now, you won't be able to overcome it. You will not be able to overcome it. You will not be able to overcome it ten years from now. Ten years from See, because we don't handle numbers well now. In other words, God promised, I'm not there yet, God promised that he'll use one person to make a hundred take flight, and ten will put to flight a thousand. That's what he promises. But when you don't walk with God, the numbers are reversed. One of them can put a thousand of us to flight. That's where we are today, weak and fearful. That's why when it says rejoice, the Lord is king. Your king adore and love. Rejoice, give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. That means walk in the triumph which is in Christ as you rejoice acknowledging his sovereign crown rights and as you push back all of the evils of this world system as you stand for the living God. It doesn't matter what kind of hits you take. See, the enemy knows that we're not ready for war. We want to eat, sleep, and make merry, and then tomorrow do the same thing. Bunch of drunkards of Ephraim. That's where we are in the church today. And every day, hell is making more advancements. And the brothers and sisters that are out there fighting and winning the battle, many of them are not even Christians. Thank you, Lord, because he's the God of all flesh. He's the father of spirits. He controls all people group. I'm so glad God made everybody. I'm glad he made all groups. I'm glad because if he had to wait for Christians, it wouldn't get done. I'm so glad he raises up atheists and agnostics and backwards crazy people who still have the intrinsic fundamentals of the Imago Dei written in their heart, and they know you cannot promote chaos without getting destruction. They know that. Am I making some sense? This is why I honor them. I really do. I honor them because I know God is keeping them. God will use Nebuchadnezzar. God will use Xerxes. God will use Artaxerxes. God will use Constantine. God will use the pagan rulers when the Christians won't because he's the God of all flesh. Don't you think your God only owns and loves you? He owns everybody. All the cattle on a thousand hills. Every government on the planet our God owns. He can turn the hearts of the king whenever he wants to. He can raise them up. He can set them down. And I don't care who God puts on the throne. I know he's right when he does it. Ain't got to be a Christian president. Have you looked at the track record of the Christian presidents over the last 30 years? Uh, We got to have a Christian president. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? The evidence does not prove that. 
We want God's president. That's what we want. We want God's man. We want God's... God knows how to use the wicked. And if he's talking about purging and cleaning house, he'll take a wicked man and set him up there. And then guess what we're going to do? We're going to pray for that wicked man. We're going to pray for that wicked man as God uses that wicked man to discipline. Because I think that's what he's doing right now, using a wicked man to discipline. And we keep complaining on a political level, but God's up to something right now. All right, let me keep going. Let me keep going. This is so very good. Aaron is rebuked by this. Point number two, the true anointing of God. There's a couple things about to take place. We call this being called apart by God. All of God's people are called apart. Did you know that? When he saves you, he calls you out of this world. He calls you unto himself. Does he not? That's exactly right. He calls you unto himself. Look at how this works. I'm over in verses 12 through 15 in our text. We've started. Moses sent and called Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Elah, which said, we will not come up. Now, Dathan and Abiram were in the first list of people, were they not? Now, they're not priests. Dathan and Abiram are sons of Simeon. They're princes. Okay, they're rulers. Now, God, uh, Moses has already dealt with Aaron uh, Moses already dealt with Korah, Dathan, and the rest, okay? Now, now what Moses, uh, Korah, de- dealt with Korah's group. Now Moses is dealing with Dathan and Abiram, who simply are princes, sons of Eliab, Eliab, who is a son of Simeon. You can learn this in Deuteronomy. Notice what he says in verse 13. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land that flows with milk and honey? This is the way Dathan and Abiram are responding to Moses' call. Y'all got that? Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Now, we've heard that over and over and over again, have we not? To kill us in the wilderness and to make yourself altogether a prince over us? See what I mean by the horizontal dilemma? And also, do you see what I mean by it coming down from the top? This is proper candidate. It always comes down from the top. Okay, I'm going to stop when it's time to stop and we'll just pick up next week. I want you to get this because you need to get it. Very seldom do people on the ground believe what they believe that doesn't first come from people above. Very seldom do the common people on the ground believe all of the, the nomenclature and the folklore and all of the different ideological constructs and the common views unless it first is piped down by people in positions of authority. I'm going to say it one more time and I'm going on. Very seldom do you meet people who in the confidence of their naivete just, just, you know, regurgitate the same old empty rhetoric that you hear everywhere without it first being piped down from above. It's always piped down. It's always given to institutions. It's working through the elite. It is a propaganda that is an education system that's piped down. By the time it gets to the common people, it's already worked through the system as a so-called norm, a fundamental uh, ipso facto set of ideas. People don't know whether they're true or not. They don't know because they assume that their leaders are telling them the truth. Am I making some sense? So now Moses is dealing with the authorities and the authorities are saying, hey, you you brought us out here to kill us. Now, the expression that they're making right here, stay with me, simply means they don't see God at all. Am I making some sense? They don't see God at all. They don't see God at all. So they must attack the physical leader. This is Jesus in his humility. He came unto his own 
and his own received him not. The world was made by him and the world knew him not. He was wounded and afflicted and bruised of men, was he not? They rejected him, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. For my love they hated me. Is this Jesus in his humility? It certainly is. And notice what it says over in verse 13, uh, verse 14. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey, or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Now, I don't even remember one time Moses ever telling them what he would do for them. <laughs> Come on, human beings are funny. If they weren't so wicked, how funny is this? Moses, where my vineyard? Where my, sounds like reparations to me. Moses, where this, where that, where this, right? I mean, this is so wild. If you expect men to give you something, you don't trust God. See, I want God to give me mine. Because God don't lie, fail, or change. God will make good on his promises. If he promised me this, he'll give it to me. If he promised me that, God will make it good. If God says, Jesse, you don't need that, I want to be able to trust God that I don't need it. Woe unto a man that trusteth in man. And this is the Marxist system you live in. It loves to keep you stuck in the horizontal position and think you're godly. You're not godly. You're only godly when you think God's thoughts after him. And you're only godly when you're content with such things as you have. You're not godly. You're worldly. If, if the world, I've taught this church this for years. If the world is saying it largely, it cannot be of God. I've told you that over and over. Hurry up and discern that when you open your mouth and frame a thing. Am I coming from the word of God? Am I coming from the mind of God? Or am I speaking everything else that everybody else is speaking? Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? It's so important for you to know that because I'm telling you a divide is taking place. It's taking place right now. Here's the divide. I'm going to show you the divide. I'm going to show you the judgment and then we'll come back next week. This is a divide happening. So Moses said unto, uh, Moses said unto, uh, Moses was very angry, verse 15. Notice, oh, I want you to catch this last part. I'm in verse 14 again. He says, uh, have you brought us, you have not brought us to the land flowing with milk or honey or giving us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Look at this last line. Are you there? Will you put out the eyes of these men? You see it? Pastor, help me. Say, Pastor, help me. Good. This is important for you to get. These two men are accusing Moses of deceiving the people and blinding them to the reality of God. They are accusing Moses of pretending to be God's servant and bringing them out of Egypt so that they are saying Moses is a deceiver. Did you get that? Happens all the time. Happens all the time. See, when you don't see God, you got to always blame somebody else. This is called projection again. Is this projection? Didn't I just say when the wicked are walking in their insecurity, they like to project on other people what they're walking in. These men are blind, are they not? They don't see God, do they? And they want to blame Moses for deceiving everybody else. Notice what they said. We're not going up to you, Moses. Now, Moses is the counsel. Didn't God set him up? Didn't he set him up under his father-in-law Jethro? 
Everybody had their groups, and the harder things you bring up to Moses, are these men rebelling against God? Yes, yes they are. Just want you to see it, because it happens every day at micro levels in our lives, too. People hate authority, and particularly authority from God. They hate it. They hate it. The setting apart becomes so very clear. Look at what it says over in verse 15, 16. And Moses said to Korah, be thou and all your family, all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And take every man his censer and put, it in, uh, put incense in them and bring them before the Lord, every man his censer. 250 censers, you also and Aaron, each of you his censer. And they took everyone his censer and put fire in them and laid the laid incense therein and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. Do you see that? And Korah gathered all the congregation uh, against them, that is Moses and Aaron, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. Here it is. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, and unto Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. So <laughs> from verses 1 to verse 19, men are talking. Now God shows up. There's a lesson here. You know what God will let us do? He'll let us talk. He'll let us argue. He'll let us debate. And some of us will be arguing against God and won't know it. Others of us will be arguing for God and we hope it's true. And then we all have to wait until God shows up. Judge nothing before the time, right? For we know that when the Lord comes, he'll bring to light every hidden thing and make manifest the secrets of the heart. Am I telling the truth? This is the danger about politics. Give me a few more minutes. This is the danger about politics because politics, it elicits from you and me a kind of anxious lust. Once you buy into the game and you choose sides, you're anxious now. You want to go to war. You want to go to battle. And a lot of times in that battle in the left and right, the left is doing a bunch of chicanery and, and hooking and crooking and modifying the data and the information and, and, and speaking things that are not true. But the right is doing the same thing because they're both operating out of wicked principles because they're not trusting God. They're operating out of their own maniacal system because the goal for them is not truth. The goal is numbers. This is how you get outcomes at a voting point. Am I making sense? The goal is numbers, so they do whatever they can to make it 5150. We win. This is called a delusion. When what we have to do is wait on the Lord. And when you wait on the Lord, you pray about it and say, Lord, make manifest the counsels of the heart. Even mine, even ours. If we're not right, show us, Lord. Show us where we're wrong because we're trusting you. See what I'm getting at? All right, so now let's look at the judgment briefly before we go out of here. Notice what it says under uh, point number three. I want to skip the humility because it's very evident that both of these men are humble. By the way, it's just so, so wild, so wild. Moses, all this time, ladies and gentlemen, is wearing a veil. Did you get what I just stated? All this time he has the veil on. He's falling on his face in the veil. 
He's pleading with his brethren with a veil on. He's mediating before God with a veil on. This is humility. Do you see it? And they're missing the glory because his veil. I think God is up to something there, wouldn't you? See, if God really wanted them to capture his glory, he would say, Moses, take the veil off. But the veil being on is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3. But even to this day, the veil still remains over the heart of the Jewish people so they do not see Jesus as Messiah. So if God therefore veils Christ from you, you cannot see him. All you can see is the man. Am I making some sense? All right, let me finish up here. Point number three, the true God is what? He's the true God. Now, I love this. Notice what it says over in verse 28. And Moses said, hereby shall you know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of my own mind. Do you see it? It's what people are accused of. I have not done this of my own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. Is that good or what? Is that good or what? Like, in other words, what Moses is saying, we don't want anything that can be called an incident or an accident or an anomaly. Lord, you go out to do something so outrageous that can't nobody blame it on me. Am I making some sense? See, so now he's putting his reputation on the line. That's called humility. Here it is. Watch this. He says over in verse 29, if these men die the death of the uh, death of all men, or if they be visited with the normal visitation of men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, do you see that? If the Lord make a new thing and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that pertains unto them and they go down quickly into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Now, what you don't know right there is that the spirit of God has taken hold of Moses and prophesied through him. That is not Moses talking. That is not Moses talking. That's God talking. Did you hear what I just stated? That is not Moses talking, that is God talking. Please listen to me. Moses wouldn't generate that kind of vivid, explicit damnation upon them. He prayed about that back earlier. Remember, Lord, show me my wickedness. I don't want to be this wicked. And yet Moses being guided by God to show them the judgment that's coming. Let's see whether or not it came to pass. Verse 31. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, their houses, and all the men that appertained to Korah, and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into hell, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. That's called a new thing. <laughs> That's a new thing. My time is up. I'm going to pick this up next week. Here's how I want to start. See, if, if, you, if you love your Bible, here's what you know. The Old Testament contains the new. The New Testament explains the old. We follow this idea of the ground opening up and swallowing people up. It's a picture of hell. Hell hath enlarged her mouth. People fall into it every day. 
the children of Israel here are a picture of the Egyptians. Because according to Exodus 15, when the Red Sea was opened up, they went through the Red Sea. It was a picture of dying in Jesus and going through hell and coming out on the other side. And then the Egyptians went in and the text says, and the ocean swallowed them up. In other words, to be swallowed up is to be left in your sins because you rebel against God and you reject the only hope of salvation, which is in Christ. Am I making some sense? All right. Another time that the swallowing up comes, just giving you a little help was when one of God's choice servants thought he could act a fool with God and he asked God to kill him. Do you remember that? His name was Jonah. Jonah said, Lord, just kill me. And Jonah told the fishermen to throw him over. And guess what? A whale swallowed him up. And the Bible says as he was sinking down to the bottom of the whale's belly, he recognized he was in hell. And the bars of hell had gotten him all together. That's when he cried out to the Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I'm sorry. And God had mercy on him, spit him up on the shores of Nineveh. And that brother came right out of that well preaching the word of God. Y'all stand with me. And the way the Bible closes is by the saints being encompassed about in Revelation chapter 20 in the same way in which they're encompassing Moses and Aaron about. That's what we're going to unpack next week. The thematic principle of the word of God is God always calls a few. And the rest of the world being governed by the wicked one loves to use their many to attack God's few. And we are told and the enemy encompassed the camp of the saints about. And God opened the heavens and rained down fire upon them and consumed them all. Do you guys remember that? Well, I want you to see the last verse here in our text. Notice what it says. They perished from among the congregation. Verse 34. Keep going. Keep going. You got work up there to do. And all of Israel around about them fled at the cry. For they said, lest the earth swallow us up too. That's good. That's a good reaction, isn't it? I wish they would pay attention to it because next week we're going to find out they're still clowning. Please understand, child of God. Please understand. The only way you and I can trust God and love God is if he changes our heart. God can bring catastrophe upon this earth of that kind of measure, and you can be right up on it, and it won't change you. Today you will fear in your flesh and quake in your neurological makeup, and tomorrow you will still have a hard heart against the true and the living God. Am I making some sense? Notice what the next verse says. Number 1635, and there came fire out from the Lord and consumed who? The 250 men that offered what? Please listen very carefully. You don't choose God. God chooses you. You don't tell God who he has to pick. God picks whom he wants. We're going to pick up here next week and show you that the doctrine of election is the only reason you're saved. Only reason you're saved is because God chose you. There was nothing in you that God saw by which he would choose you over somebody else. Stay with me. I'm done here. 
Please understand you and I deserve nothing but the same opening of the ground that these men did. The only reason that you're saved is because of the grace of God choosing you in Jesus and keeping you from your own rightful desert. Am I making some sense? And he chose us in Christ because he loved us in Christ. And it was in Christ that God swallowed up hell that you and I deserve. Death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is gone. The power of the grave has no right over us. We don't fear suffering. We don't fear death because it was all paid for in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. May he grant you in the love of God to make you bold as lions, bold as lions, to be wise as serpents, wise as serpents, to be gentle as doves, but never compromise the God that loved you and gave his son for you. Never compromise him. May he grant you to tell the truth as it is in Jesus, no matter what comes. That's the only way this crazy world can be saved. Amen. 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 Amen.